Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this episode of Free Thinking with Montel. Today, we're privileged to host a truly remarkable woman. She's a testament to resilience, embodying a narrative of survival, grit, and grace. Born in Nazi Germany, her family embarked on an odyssey to escape the clutches of tyranny, journeying three quarters away around the world into the unknown with only $10.50 on their, in their pockets and clothes on their back. Her memoir, My American Dream, A Journey from Fascism to Freedom, is not just about survival, but also an unyielding determination to thrive. From a German-speaking refugee in a tiny town in Washington State yearning to be an authentic American to a trailblazing executive smashing through glass ceilings in New York City's advertising business, she personifies the American dream in every sense. Barbara Fain, thank you so much for joining us today on Free Thinking. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. It's so good to have you here. Look, to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, it's astonishing to hear your, your family story and what they had to go through to flee Germany when you were just two years old. Can you share with us any, any of the insights about this? Oh, absolutely, uh, Montel. The, the really fascinating thing was that we came when I was two years old and I had no memory at all of anything having to do with this escape. I knew that we'd escape, but I really knew no details about it at all. My parents never talked about it. I never asked any questions because, you know, my focus was on becoming an authentic American girl. So just a few years ago, uh, my sister gave me a call from her, her house in Annapolis, Maryland. She called every now and then to talk about family things and so on. And she said, Barbara, this time I have something different to tell you. She said, I've discovered a journal that our father kept when uh, he was he was in the run up to the escape and throughout the, the whole horrifying, terrible, terrifying escape itself. And she sent me this journal and I was, I was completely shocked and stunned emotionally. Um, I had you have, do you have that journal with you? Do you have I, a journal? Well, I have it in, in my house. I don't have it in my hand, but I have it in my house. Oh, my goodness. So I would say to you, if you had it close by, I'd love to hear some of the, just a couple of the passages. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Okay. Um, you know, my, my father, uh, he, he had been in the German uh, military for, in World War I, and he felt he was, he was Jewish. My mother was Lutheran. And he felt he had given to Germany in his military service. So Germany would always take care of him. And as a result, he waited very, very long before he realized that we were going to have to escape. The persecution of Jews was, was really becoming quite horrific. He could not work anymore. Uh, he looked after me while my mother worked and, and um, he took me to the little park across the street from their apartment. And there was a yellow bench there for Jews to sit on, and they had to wear their yellow star. And my father wouldn't do any of that. Really, such a dangerous, I mean, great character, you know, because he was going to do what he thought was right, but so dangerous, he really could have been taken off to the concentration camps. So let me, let me ask you just a question, Barbara, because I know, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, 
I will tell you, it's, it's going to sound crazy, but, you know, even at my age right now, as a child, I have memories, very, very distinct memories from age two, two and a half, three. I, I know them for a fact. I remember uh, the apartment that we used to live in. I remember uh, the, the fact that I actually slept in a, a bunk bed and as a baby, uh, when I was growing up, I was in a bunk bed. My brother slept below me, and I had to take the top. And I remember at least two times falling out of that bunk bed. Oh, my gosh. I, I must have been – I could not have been older than 26 months. I also remember taking my bottles and throwing them out the window. I had a long conversation with an older sister of mine. And so I remember, you know, I always just thought it was so cool to be able to throw my bottle right out the window. And I did. We lived in a second-story apartment, and, I, my, and my bottle would fly out the window – hit the ground down below, you know, they were plastic back then, but of course some, some of those would break or not. Do you, do you, even after having read your dad's journal, did any of those things kind of flash back as, no, no? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. My, well, speaking, my, okay, I was going to say, because part of what you I know about your journey, when you guys, when you left Germany, you traveled basically west to east to get to the United States, right? So you left, you went through China, you went through Japan, you went through Lithuania, you went through all kinds of places. Russia, yeah. Siberia, Russia. China, Korea, Any? Japan. Yeah. Any of those memories at all? Nothing. Nothing. Wow, okay. In in my in my mind, my life kind of began in the little town where we finally settled, Chehalis, Washington, this little town of five thousand. And that's, I, I remember that time, but I remember nothing at all before that. So it's, it's interesting. It's strange. I don't, I mean, the, the journal didn't really bring back memories either. It just yeah. sort of horrified me to, to realize sure. what my parents you know, had gone through. And, and when you talk about what your dad went through and you were talking about the fact that he would sit on the benches, refusing to wear that yellow star and refusing to acknowledge the fact of his heritage, was he still discriminated against? Could people walk up? People couldn't walk up and tell he was he was Jewish unless he said so or no. I, I don't know. I don't know the whole answer to that question. I do know that he was no longer able to work. He okay. had worked for the Ford Motor Company, and um, you know Jews were not able to have jobs like that anymore. So he couldn't work. My mother really was the breadwinner during that era. Uh, and he looked after me after I was born. And, um, you know, we, we never really talked about this. I didn't really know very much about it. I think um, for my parents also, it was so important to them to be in America, in the land of the free. I mean, they just impressed this on me just again and again. They said, you know, when you're in the land of the free, and you asked about my father's words, he said, in the land of the free, you can be who you want to be, you can do what you want to do, you can strive for what you want to achieve, and very important to him, he said, you can read what you want to read, you can read differing opinions about things, you can listen to the radio, which of course was a big, big thing in those days. Um, he, he was so elated, he and my mother, to be in the land of the free, even though they had nothing. They had no money. They had no English. They had no connections. They had no idea how they would make a life for themselves. But they they were determined to make it work. And 
they did. They did. And very, and very, very interesting because when did you think, what year did you arrive in the United States, in, in America after? In America? August of 1940. Wow. So I, I thought your journey through all those other countries were over four or five year period of time, but that journey was just a transit journey. Oh, Montel, this was a 17 day train trip across all that three quarters of the way around the world, as my father said, three quarters of the way around the world into the unknown. It was on a horrible train, dirty and and blacked out because it was wartime, you know, and, and uh, the train was blacked out. They couldn't show any light. There were many days when they didn't have food. They had nothing to drink. There were 82 refugees in our group. The oldest was a woman 81 years old, I know from my father's journal, and I was the youngest at two. Uh, it was terrifying. The train was stopped 14 times during this 17-day trip, and each time my parents had to show their documentation, show their few belongings in, in whatever, whatever they could carry, you know, and each time they were petrified, they were terrified that they'd be taken off the train and who knows what would have happened to them. So, you know, I really, when I read my father's journal, I could really feel what he was talking about. I, I really felt it. It was such elation and such profound relief to be in the land of the free. Um, and it's and very interesting because, you know, in 1940, the land of the free was not as free as most people believe it is. It was, even though it was free. I mean, you know, America had its own difficulties that we've still never admitted to when it comes to even absorbing Jewish refugees from Germany. Um, you know, I think uh, there's uh, maybe in 20 years, the truth will finally come out about how much the American government knew about what was going on and what the plans were and didn't do much about it. So I, I really just, I, when your father, when your family reached the, the shores of America, were they, did they find freedom the way they thought they were going to find it? Well, yes. And, and certainly, you know, relative to what they'd come from, where right. they were being very, they and, and everybody like them uh, were being persecuted so severely. And, and my father's parents were uh, taken to concentration camps. They were murdered in concentration camps. So yes, uh, you know, uh, America very much to them was the land of the free. I remember, um, you know, my, my, I, I found some letters that my parents had written to their parents uh, in, in the, you know, early days after they'd arrived in America. And my father said to them, you know, here in America, even the shop girls drive cars. And he could not wait to be able to buy a car. And finally, after scrimping and saving, he only made $17 a week when he finally got a job at the then Sears Robot Company. They, they saved and saved and saved. And he was finally able to buy a Studebaker Champion. And he was so thrilled and so proud of this car because Montel, you know, it was, it was a symbol as well as an actual tool, you know, to kind of get around and go where he wanted to go. It was a symbol that he'd arrived in the land of the free, where he could go where he wanted, do what he wanted, etc. And then what were your earliest memories? You said you, you started having memories once you relocated to Washington State. 
When do you think, what age were you when you started having some of your earliest memories? Well, I, 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 I vaguely remember, uh, you know, my, my early preschool days, vaguely, vaguely. Uh, and, you know, we were, we were a very weird little family in this town. Everybody in the town was sort of homogeneous, you know, and they, families had lived there for many generations. They'd never seen anybody like us. We were a weird little refugee family who had nothing, no money, no clothes, no nothing. Um, the the uh, neighbors would give me hand-me-downs to wear because I didn't have any clothes. And my mother would have to remodel these, in quotes, remodel um, these, these clothes so that they would fit me properly. And they always looked sort of awkward and strange. And, and um, I, I really, you know, not, I, I didn't really know what this meant, but I certainly felt like I was an outlier. I wasn't really, you know, just like everybody else. And I remember when I, when I went to school, um, I loved school and I loved being, you know, with all the other kids and, and I just wanted to be just like them. And I was very excited. I was a, I was a brownie scout, you know, sort of the pre-Girl Scout brownie scout. And that was wonderful because I had a uniform. I had a little brown dress and a little brown beanie. And when I wore that on brownie day, I thought, oh my gosh, I look just like everybody else. And it was, it was terrific. But uh, just a little sidebar story. My mother, who was a wonderful knitter, decided as a special sort of gift for me, she would knit me a pair of socks to go with my brownie uniform. And they were a light beige color. And my my name was Barbara Summer. That's my maiden name. Uh, and so she put my initials in dark brown uh, yarn, BS. Mm. And I wore these socks to school and all the boys crowded around and started laughing and poking each other and saying, she's BS. Mm. They said what BS was. And of course, I had no idea, you know, right. and I ran home and I told my mother who knew nothing about what American slurs were, you know, and she was just crushed because she thought she'd done something so nice for me. And I, I really appreciated never wore the socks again, of course. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. So you went through you went through the typical elementary school, junior yeah. high school, high yes. school, graduated and you actually went to Harvard Radcliffe, right? Well, first I went to Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. Chehalis, the town where I grew up, was a town of 5,000. And Walla Walla, to me, was a big city. It was 25,000. And uh, so I went to Whitman. And in my time, uh, the options for women when we graduated were to either be a nurse, be a teacher, be a typist, or get married. And none of those options were for me at that time anyway. And so, yes, I did find, I, I was very interested in business always, and I'd always worked. So I found a program in graduate program in business administration that was run by the Harvard Business School and Radcliffe Graduate School. Now, interestingly, uh, the Harvard Business School did not accept women. It was a male only school. And this program was identical to the first year at the Harvard Business School. Same classes, same subjects, same teachers, same everything, but it was not taught on the campus of the Harvard Business School. It was taught at Radcliffe. 
Now, I was thrilled to be in this program and didn't even occur to me to be concerned about that. But as I thought about it in, in retrospect, I thought, well, now that was kind of silly. You know, and of course, later on, women did become, did get uh, admitted to the business school as they are today. But that that's what I did for graduate school, yes. And was there, you know, I'm sure as you grew up and you matriculated through school, you know, your father, did he stay in the same job? Did he change jobs? Did your mother get a job? Did, you know, you must have learned some lessons from them to be even to even thinking about, you know, going on to graduate school. A absolutely. Well, my parents always, always stressed the, the power of education to open doors to opportunity from the time I was very, very little. And whenever we went on sort of family trips in the Studebaker, my mother always figured out a route that would take us to college towns so that we could look at various colleges in the Northwest and in California and so on. Um, you asked about my father. He he got his initial job at Sears Roebuck. He was a Berliner, a big city man, and he got a job in the farm store at Sears Roebuck selling barbed wire and chicken feed. And he had no clue, no idea, you know, about any of this. But he worked very hard and he was very determined. And he had a, a mentor who was the manager of the Sears store in Chehalis. And he sort of brought him along. So eventually he uh, ran a department in the Sears store. And then years later, my parents moved to Seattle and he ran a very big department in the Seattle Sears store. He was very proud of that. You know, he'd sort of made a really important life and done very well. Um, my mother had a lot of health problems over the years, starting really from the time practically when we arrived. Uh, she had always worked in Germany. She was an executive assistant to the head of a publishing company. And in America, she started uh, her her working life and she she wanted to work and we you know the family needed the money and she was an avon lady at the time when avon ladies went door to door with their samples of of uh, cosmetics and sold cosmetics to women door to door and I, at that point i had a younger sister and i would have to take my sister along in her stroller and wait outside while my mother went inside and sold lipstick and and uh, powder and what have you to the to the women of Chehalis. Eventually, very interestingly, for a woman who spoke only German when she came, my mother became a newspaper reporter in Chehalis, and she was she was the society reporter, and <laughs> she sort of reported on all the weddings and the teas and the visitations that people made with their with their. Um, their relatives and so forth. And she loved that. She loved that dearly. And she was very good at it. So, you know, wow. they were always very, very hardworking, had a strong work ethic. And you, you of course, embody that. And that's why you went ahead and went on to graduate school. When you graduated from, from college or got your degree, did you have an idea where you were going to go next? Well, when I, when I went to the program at Harvard, at the Harvard Business School program, I, I, I really realized that I wanted to be in marketing. And, um, you know, I, I knew that the sort of where marketing was happening was New York. And, uh, you know, I'd been in school in Boston and I thought, well, I'm just going to have to go to New York and see what I can make happen here. And so, again, sort of like my parents, I, I came to New York with nothing. 
no money, no friends, no place to live, no job, no nothing. Uh, but I, I figured, you know, I, I would figure it out and I would make it work. And and uh, I did get a job. Uh, but again, in, in marketing, even even now today, the the sort of stepping stone jobs for career path development are product management and brand management. And those jobs were completely closed to women. Women just couldn't get those kinds of jobs. Uh, so I kind of had to go through the back door and I got a job in market research for the then Vic Chemical Company, the makers of Vic's VapoRub and Formula 44 and NyQuil and all those good brands that we all know and, and use, I'm sure. And um, so I got a job as a market research trainee, loved it, loved it, loved it. I got very good feedback about my performance. And I thought after about a year, you know, I, I better go and talk with my boss about career path development and compensation and so forth. And, and I sort of made an appointment and nervously went in and sat down across from him. And I said, Tom, you know, I've been here about a year and I'd really like to talk with you about career path development. And he just sort of stared at me for a minute. And then he threw his head back and he just started roaring with laughter. And I said, well, why are you laughing, Tom? He said, well, there is no career path. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, women. They get married, they have babies, they leave. Women. I said, well, Tom, I plan to get married. I plan to have babies, but I went to business school and I plan to have a career. He said, well, Margaret, if that's what you want, I can't help you. You have to leave. And so I did. You have to leave after a year? I had to leave after a year because there was no place to go. You know, no career path, no opportunity. And I wanted opportunity. So I found my way into the advertising business after that. And who did you go to work for first? I went to work. My first job, my first agency job was an agency called Benton and Bowles. It was a very big, very prominent agency, had fabulous clients. And, um, oh, I loved that. But as soon as I got into advertising, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is for me. I love the, the strategic problem definition, problem solving. I love the creativity and, and I love the collaboration. Uh, you know, kind of all these smart people working together to solve problems and put together a creative uh, approach to, to addressing them. Uh, we're, talking mid, we're talking mid 60s right now. Yes, right? yes. And yes. in the mid 60s, though, still that same glass ceiling was there and probably even more prominent than. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, I made an appointment. I sat down across from him and his name was Val. I said, Val, I'm going to have a baby. Oh, he said, Barbara, that's fabulous. I'm so happy for you and Jim. Congratulations. And I said, well, let me tell you my plan. I plan to work until the baby is born and then I'll take a few weeks off and then I'll come back. And he, he, he just sort of sagged. He fell. His face fell. He said, no, we don't do that. I said, you don't do what? We don't have maternity leaves. I said, but Val, that's my plan. I plan to work until the baby's born, take a few weeks off, and then come back. Oh, he said, I can't help you with that. I'm going to have to go to the higher ups. 
Oh, I said, thank you. That's fabulous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he did. And nervously, I might add, he was not happy about having to do this, but he agreed to do it. And a few days later, he called me in and he said, Barbara, you have it. So have what? You have a maternity leave. I said, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. He said, but I've got to tell you, we can't pay you during the time you're out. And we can't promise you that you'll have the same job that you had that you have now, uh, but you will have a job. And I, I was just thrilled. And, and I'll tell you, Montel, it was such an important thing because it was the first time that it happened in that agency. And I felt like it kind of paved the way for all the women who came after me. It was Absolutely. really important. Yeah. That's incredible. That's really, that really is incredible. Um, you know, you were a trailblazer, heck you had been all the rest of your life. So when you did take that break and come back, did you have the same job or did you get a different one? I had the same job. I did have the same job. Yeah. Because I probably figured that you were irreplaceable at that point, right? Well, I don't know, but <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> That's great. So you stayed on with them for a while and then keep telling me about your career. So what happened? Well, well I had, I had, uh, I had gone, you know, I sort of followed what was going on in the advertising business and I saw that this agency called Gray Advertising was doing really well. You know, they were bringing in all these very prestigious accounts. And, and um, I kind of wondered, like, how were they doing this? What was their what was their secret sauce, so to speak? So I began to go to some conferences and I heard some of the gray executives speak about their approach to doing business, to making advertising and to building, building brands, building businesses, building companies. And what, what they decided, which was a very, very new thing in that day, was that, that Gray felt that they would get an edge by learning more about the consumer, the consumer's wants and needs, wishes and hopes and dreams, worries and concerns. They would know more about that than anybody else. And they, they began to develop, and I continued with this when I got there, they began to develop tools and techniques for doing large-scale quantitative attitude research. Nobody had ever done this before. You know, the way advertising got made until that time was that, you know, a bunch of smart people would sit in a room and kind of brainstorm, and, some, and men mostly, and consumer products are mainly bought by women. So A, men were doing the, the brainstorming. Occasionally, they would get input from their wives, sometimes from their secretaries, but there'd never been a, a large-scale effort to really dig in and understand the consumer's psyche, so to speak. And so that's what Gray was doing. And I thought, oh my gosh, I want to do that, you know, because their market research, consumer research, which is the way I got into marketing, is really so critical to what makes this agency tick. It's like the foundation to everything else that comes after. I want to be there. I want to do that. So um, I, I followed very carefully when they had job openings and all that sort of thing. And, and I saw that they had one and I, I went to apply for a job. And the woman who interviewed me, she said, Barbara, you know, I really like you. And I think that you do really well here, but you just, don't quite have the right experience. I've been doing a lot of research to test advertising, not to find out for consumers what they want, but to see whether ad A versus ad B 
was more memorable, communicated better, was better liked, was more persuasive and so on. But it didn't really start up front with what are we trying to do anyway with this advertising? You know? So she said, you need to try to get some of that kind of large scale consumer research experience before we can hire you. And if you do that for a year and you come back in a year, I'll hire you. And I was very lucky because a, a colleague of mine at Benton and Bowles was just starting a new job doing sort of this kind of research. And he wanted me to come and be his assistant. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'll do this for a year and then I'll go trotting back to Gray. And that's what happened. I did that. I went back to Gray to my same woman who gave me the advice. She said, you've got the job. That's and right. that that was the beginning of a very long, uh, fabulous, fabulous, fun, exciting, successful career for me at Gray. And what year are we talking about right now? That was probably, oh, 1969, 1969, 69. yeah. And let's, let's go back to 1969. That was the end of the, well, the Vietnam War was still raging. And um, at that point in time, you know, I think anti-Semitism across America was really, had, had already been on the rise, but was on the rise. Did you experience any of that or any setbacks from that at all during your, your no? But, but you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I had lived kind of a sheltered life. I was probably very naive. If there was, I wasn't aware of it. But I, I never was aware of being held back. Uh, or, or, or nobody because ever of said it because of, because of my background. Because um, right. But how about because of, of being a woman? Do you still feel it? Oh, that yes. Let's talk a little bit about that. Oh, that. Well, I, I, I was very, very often the only woman in the room. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, at Gray, I, over the years, I took on a more and more prominent role in the agency, became part of the agency's six-person management team, traveled around the world, you know, with with gray management and for our clients and with our clients and so forth. And um, very, very, very often the only woman in the room. Uh, then I, I went on the boards of a couple of New York Stock Exchange companies. And I remember that the first board meeting I went to as the only woman in the room once again, the the male members of the board really didn't know what to do with me. They they sort of looked upon me as the woman, and they talked among themselves and laughed and joked and and really didn't pay much attention to me at all. And I found I had to just keep raising my voice and raising my voice and raising my voice and raising my voice, raising my voice until finally they listened. And then they realized that I did have something to contribute. And after that, you know, I became part of the rest of the board, integrated more fully into the rest of the board, but um, often, oftentimes the only woman in the room. Wow. And during this period of time, and I don't mean to take you back to bad memories or if they were uh, just untoward memories, but did not your husband have some difficulty? Oh my goodness, yes, yes. Shattering, shattering, shattering. Explain to us. Okay, I, I, I met my husband in the business school. Uh, we were married in New York. We had three sons, uh, two of whom are identical twins. 
And um, he he was also a started life as a marketing executive, eventually became the president of a cosmetics and toiletries company. And um, in, I think it was 1990, he had a very serious stroke. Mm. And it was a shattering time for, for him, of course, but really for our family. Uh, it, he was a vibrant, vital, uh, energetic, fun-loving, gregarious kind of guy. People loved him. He loved people. He loved life. And all of, I mean, fortunately, he did not lose his speech and he did not lose his mental faculties, but he was quite paralyzed on the right side. Um, he was mobile, but quite paralyzed. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this vibrant man, all of a sudden his world has gotten so small. And how old was he at the time? 54 years old, no. very young, very young to have a stroke like this. So I remember um, this happened in July and you know there, there are no doctors around in New York. So I hustled around trying to figure out where to take him to the doctor, finally, finally did. And as we were leaving the doctor's office, he said, Mr. Fagan, you are having a stroke. You need to be in the emergency room right now. And so we were leaving the doctor's office to go to the emergency room. And he called me back and he said to me, Mrs. Fagan, your life will never be the same. And I would say truer words were never spoken. I mean, it changed our lives. We, we uh, you know, we, we adjusted as a family. Uh, fortunately, you know, as I said, I have, I have three sons. We have three sons. And um, they were very attentive to their dad. And fortunately, they all lived in New York at the time. So they could come to see him. They could bring their kids as they, you know, as they got married and had children. They could bring their kids to see him. Uh, and then in 1999, he had a second stroke mm. in exactly the same part of his brain as the first one, which really exacerbated all of the problems that he had. You know, made it his balance was terrible. His, uh, I mean, almost non-existent. He and he really lost independence, which, which he just, you know, coveted. Um, so it was, it was, it was a shattering, shattering time for our family. It really was. And I for him, remember. obviously well, for him. Well, just so you understand, I know exactly what you're talking about. I suffered a very extreme hemorrhagic stroke five years ago, six years ago. And I'm very blessed that, you know, fortunately the damage was not as great as it could have been. However, you know, I spent a month in a hospital when I first suffered the stroke. Um, first couple of days, I couldn't move, and you know, I got my faculties back, and I was—I never lost my mental acuity as much as there was a period of time for a minute that I thought my speech was going to be extremely affected. But I—I I fought my way through that, and um, but I understand how it it affects the entire family, the entire family, and so you know, and and like yourself, my wife. Uh, literally is who saved my life, I think, who kept me here, who's the reason why I'm still here. You know? Oh, well, thank you for telling me this. No, absolutely. Come on. Now. I know I just can sense from who you are, how much you effort you put into reassuring him and keeping him there. You know, I would bet he would have said to you that um, you were the reason why he's still alive. Yeah. 
So, but now you're managing three children. Had a boisterous, lively, fun life. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But I mean, really, what that resilience, where did it come from? Did it come from your parents? Understand oh, I'm it? sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, it's sort of osmosis, I'm sure, you know, from my parents, just seeing how they lived their lives, understanding what their values were. Uh, I'm sure that, that they modeled for me a lot of the things that without even being conscious of it, I probably brought along to my own kids. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to go back one more time just to ask you a couple more questions about, you know, again, this is a time period where you know, I, I wish we as Americans could, we could look back and say that there's never been a time when um, the racism has been as extreme and especially when it comes to like right now, you know, the anti-Semitism that is is pervasive on the Internet, pervasive around the world. Um, you know, I, I, I just... What are your views? I mean, wh how do you how do you navigate this space right now? Oh wow, what a question! It's um, a tough question. I know. I'm so <laughs> what a question! What a question! Yeah. Uh, carefully, <laughs> yeah. carefully, um, carefully. No, you know, having having experienced as it personally and as a family war because of anti-Semitism and knowing uh, how it, it can be so devastating, profoundly devastating to families. And to the point that, as I mentioned before, my, my father's parents were murdered uh, in the concentration camps. I just don't wish this on anybody. This is, this is all I can say. It's, um, it's just terrible. It's terrible. And, um, you know, you had asked me before, did I ever experience anti-Semitism at work? And I wasn't aware of it, nor was I aware of it in Chehalis. But when I went to college, um, in my college at that time, the, the vast majority of both men and women, girls we were called, um, belonged to fraternities and sororities. And uh, sorority rush happened immediately after we got to school. You know, there was no time to kind of get used to the school or uh, get acquainted with people or anything. We went dashing off to all these parties and teas and picnics and what have you, where, where all the girls were being sort of evaluated and assessed as to whether or not they'd be invited to join the sorority. And the day came when the bids for the sororities came out, and I did not get a bid, not one. Wow. And I, I couldn't believe this. You know, I'd had a very good high school career, so to speak, did well academically, was very involved in lots of activities and so forth. I thought, what is wrong with me? I just absolutely had no idea. It was the most humiliating, devastating, awful experience. And this was a tiny little school, you know, so everybody knew everybody else and everybody knew what was going on. And I thought, how am I going to get through this? And I just sort of had to try to walk tall and try to make friends and try to, you know, do my work and what have you. And eventually, at the half half year mark, I did get invited to join a sorority. And I never knew, like, why was it, half, you know, a half year in, not like everybody else? Why was I such an outlier? And it hadn't occurred to me that 
it had anything to do with anti-Semitism. But fast forward to my 50th 5-0 reunion, college reunion. And I'm sitting out with my classmates at a picnic lunch. Sky is blue, the sun is shining, everybody's happily exchanging stories about what's going on in their lives. And this woman, my classmate, leans over the table and whispers to me, you know, we would really have liked to pledge you, but you know, it was the Jewish thing. Well, Montel, I almost fell off my chair. Now, again, I said I was probably very naive, but that had not even occurred to me. That had not even occurred to me. I mean, in a way, it filled in a puzzle piece in my life. I understood, you know, but I thought, oh my gosh, I just can't believe this. I can't and the fact this. that she would say that at her 50th reunion is just absolutely crazy to me. I don't, I don't um, you know, I, I, I can't believe that that was said that way, but you must have been one of the most successful people from your class, right? I think that's why she said it. I think that's why she said it. She was not a member of the sorority that I finally did pledge. She was in a different sorority. And I think she knew that I'd had some success. And I think she wanted to say, you know, we would like to have had you be one of us, but you know, it was the Jewish thing. That's so crazy. Amazing. And sorry, you didn't tell me, was your husband Jewish also? My husband is Jewish, yeah. Just, was Jewish, yeah. I should say, okay. yes. Yes, no, okay. Yeah. All right. And, yeah. um, so yeah, it, 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 you didn't you didn't say anything to her, or did you did you express? I, I it? just I I really I I was just stupefied. I couldn't even believe it. I almost fell over. I can't remember what I said to her. If I said anything to her, I was so shocked. I was really shocked. That's probably incredible. shouldn't have been. Probably shouldn't have been. You know, probably right. should have been able to figure it out, but um, it hadn't even occurred to me. Wow. Well, your memoir, My American Dream, a Journey from Fascism to Freedom, is truly inspiring. What's the key message that you hope so many people take away, readers take away from your story? Well, my, my uh, mother always sort of impressed upon me her, her sort of principle for, for life, which was to dream big, to work hard, work really, really hard, and never, ever quit. And if I can inspire even one person to really take that on as a principle for his or her life, I'll feel like I made a difference. So you definitely have made a difference just by the way you've lived your life. So you should be extremely proud of that. Are you still working now? Are you retired? This is what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm, right. I wrote my book and uh, I'm trying to make the world know about it. Well, my goodness. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for sharing your incredible story and your journey with us today. To our listeners, let Barbara's story remind us all of the strength and the human spirit and the importance of resilience and the power of dreams. We can all define and shape our own American dream, no matter what the obstacles are that stand in your way. I want to thank everybody out there for listening to Free Thinking. I want to thank you again, Barbara, for being a part of the show. And I want to thank you all for making sure you tune in and continue to tune in to Free Thinking with Montel. Um, remember, Stay resilient, stay ambitious, and always stay free thinking. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments. Thank you.